season that we have in our country, in our culture, in which we remember the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. And there's some that uh, don't enjoy celebrating Christmas, even that are Christians. And there's some that say, well, he probably wasn't born on December 25th. And, you know, I, I think that's probably true. He probably was born at a different time. But I'm still thankful to live in a a country where even people who don't believe in God, just by force of the culture that we live in, by habit, um, acknowledge the birth of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And I think it's remarkable. We live in a, a sin-cursed earth where the devil has a lot of servants and including our own sinful flesh, and we're constantly being bombarded, bombarded with this lie uh, that God <clears throat> has forgotten about us, that God is weak, or that God doesn't love his people. Uh, that lie is, is pervasive in the world in which we live. The truth of God's word, of course, is God does love his people very much, that God is very much on the throne, and that God's accomplishing his purpose in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And there's none that can say unto him, what doest thou? There's none that can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? That's the reality. That's the truth of God's word. That's the revelation that we have by the Spirit of God. And yet it's in the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus Christ, that we see the the power and the wisdom of God that can only be understood by faith. And that is this symbol of God's love, the symbol of God's power, the symbol of God's wisdom is a little baby born to two poor parents in a little town of Bethlehem. Two nobodies, Joseph and Mary, who weren't even married. What could have even been considered a scandal? Little teenage woman giving birth to this child in a manger, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. They had no home. They had no hospital bed. They had a place in a barn. And this is God's gift. This is God's wisdom. This is God's love. How can that be? It's only by faith that we can embrace and say this is the wisdom of God. This is the power of God. This is the sign of God's sovereignty and of his providence and of his care for his people. And of his ability to deliver his people from their enemies. To save his people from their sins. In Isaiah 36, I want you to see an account. This is, unless you're a Bible student, this is probably an obscure passage that you haven't heard preached on or read very often before. But we have really the opposite here. We have a powerful display of the power of God to save his people in dire circumstances. And the the verse that I want to focus on here is in verse 17. I'm going to read to you a lot of Isaiah chapter 36. But there's a little word there in Isaiah 36. 3617 that I want you to see that King Hezekiah and his people that he ruled over were tempted to give in to, to, to compromise their faith, to compromise their religion, to compromise their inheritance as God's people because of this one little word. And I want you to see, God willing, how we have the same temptation in our day and how we, by God's grace, can stand firm against this temptation 
this enticement to compromise and to give away what God has given us. It's such a precious gift. You know, there's lots of gifts that we have in life. My mind's filled with different gifts that were given by God. And how often have we been guilty of undervaluing those gifts? One example would be abortion. How many aborted children in the last 30 years since we legalized, 40 years since we legalized that horrible crime? We legalized it as a nation. We said it's okay. If it's inconvenient, if it's uh, embarrassing, if you don't have enough money, it's okay for you to terminate the pregnancy. And we've taken God's precious gift and we've said, you know, it's not the right time. or I just don't desire that gift right now. How many times have we undervalued? That's an extreme example, but so many other gifts in our life. Our elderly. Brother Stephen's good about teaching you about that. The error, the sin of euthanasia. Saying, well, if somebody's quality of life reaches a certain point, it's justifiable for them to choose or for their family members to choose that their life is over. Their life has come to an end. Take the gift of life and we undervalue it. We undermine it. The gift of the church. What does the Bible say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things should be added unto you. Oh, but there's a special TV program or I was out late with my friends or there's a ball game going on or uh, fill in the blank. I've got a job to do. I've got to take care of my family. Certainly justifiable excuses but how we undervalue the kingdom of God. What about the word of God? We could go on and on. <laughs> the word of God. Oh, oh, there's so many things I could watch on TV or listen to on the radio or on the internet or watch on YouTube. Or read, even books that I could read. And how often does the Bible sit on your bookshelf or on your coffee table unopened? You see, we could go on and on, and there's many more examples we could give of gifts that God gives us, precious gifts, that for whatever reason, in our reasoning or in our uh, foolishness, we undermine, we undervalue, we ignore, we um, don't place a value upon it like we should. Probably the most valuable thing that we could illustrate would be the blood of Jesus Christ. How much do we value the blood of Christ? That's the most precious thing that there is in the the earth. The Bible says there's three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one in 1 John chapter 5. And it says there's three that bear record in the earth. The Spirit, the blood, and the water. The blood of Christ that redeems us. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. You've been bought back, brought back to God, not with silver and gold, not with any amount of money, not with billions of dollars, but with the precious blood of Christ, the Son of God, who was born to die. It's the reason He came. Well, in Isaiah 36, we find God's people in a desperate situation. They're surrounded by the king of Assyria's army, 144,000. The other cities in Israel have been... uh, taken captive, all that remains is King Hezekiah in the city of Jerusalem. The king of Assyria has done this in all of their neighboring countries. It seems like he's an unstoppable steamroller who's going to come through and barrel his way through and take God's people captive. In 17, in verse 17, he says, he says this to them, he says, verse 16, he says, make an agreement with me by a present and come out to me. And eat ye every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. 
king of Assyria gives them a proposition. Basically, he says, the only way out for you is for you to give me some nice present and then you can live in your land for a little while and then when I come back, I'll come and I'll take you away to a land like your own. That's the word I want to focus on this morning. A land like your own. It's not your land. It's not your inheritance. It's not the promised land that God's given to you. It's not the kingdom of God, but it's like it. It's similar to it. It's a counterfeit. It's a fake. But it's like it. It's a land of corn and wine. A land of bread and vineyards. And all you have to do is surrender yourselves to me. That's what the king says. And I'll come and I'll take you away. And you can live peacefully. You can live happily in a land like your own. How much do we value the inheritance that we've been given? Do you understand? Do you recognize the inheritance that's yours by faith? Do you understand what's been given to you and purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ? I want, to, I want you to hear the account of this, and we'll try to draw some illustration for our own lives as we read through this. Isaiah 36, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. How easily that word is, those three words there, how simple it is. He came up against them and he took them. This is a powerful man. This is a man with wealth. This is a man with influence. This is a man with uh, power. To do what he wants to do. And he's come. And he's taken the defense cities of Judah. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem. Unto king Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood up by the conduit of the upper pool. In the highway of the fuller's field. Then came forth unto him Eliakim. Hilkiah's son which was over the house. And Shebna the scribe. And Joah Asaph's son the recorder. And Rabshakeh said unto them. Say ye now to Hezekiah. So you've got Sennacherib's great army, his representative, Rabshakeh, who comes on behalf of Sennacherib and the king of, the, the king of Assyria's army to address these three men, these three Jewish men, with a message from the king of Assyria. Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? In other words... Who are you relying on? What are you depending on? What hope do you have as God's people today when you can look around you and see that all of your sister cities have already been taken captive? Your neighboring countries have been uh, uh, taken into captivity by the king of Assyria. What are you trusting in today that makes you so special? What is the name of your God? Who is it that you're trusting in That you think can possibly deliver you from the king of Assyria. Isn't that what the devil says to us today? What's so special about the gospel that you believe? What's so special about the Jesus that you serve? What's so special about the kingdom of God that you claim to be a part of? Don't you see what the powerful in this world are doing? They're having their way. And when they set their mark upon you, you can look at our, our brothers and sisters in China right now. I read recently they passed a law that makes it even more difficult to be a Chinese Christian. I saw a picture of a, of a pastor being put under arrest while he was preaching to his congregation. 
When the powerful of the world set their mark against you, and praise God, that hasn't happened in this nation yet, but it could at some point. When the powerful decide that you need to go, that you need to be taken into captivity, that you need to be silenced, what are you trusting in that can possibly give you hope or assurance of deliverance? What is this wherein? Who is this that your confidence is in? I say, sayest thou, but they are vain words. This is the enemy speaking. This is the enemy saying, this is probably what you're thinking, people of God. And they're vain words. That's what the enemy says. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Lo, thou trustest in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. He says, are you trusting in Egypt? Do you think the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is going to deliver you? But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Okay, maybe you say, well, we're trusting in God. We believe God can deliver us. We believe God will deliver us. He says, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah had taken away? You see, the, the ungodly don't understand the true worship of God. They say, your king Hezekiah, he's torn down the altars of the God that you claim to serve. That wasn't true. No, Hezekiah had torn down the idols. They were distracting the people of God from worshiping the true and living God. The enemy didn't understand that. He just said, Hezekiah seems to be on this tirade against uh, religion, against the worship of God. And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. The king, the, the, the king of Assyria says, basically, do you think God's going to deliver you when his altars have been torn down? That wasn't true, but that was his proposition to them. Now, therefore, give pledges, I pray thee, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give thee 2,000 horses... If thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. He's mocking them. I'm going to give you 2,000 horses. And if you have enough men that can even ride it. You can set them on there. How then wilt thou turn away the face of one captain. Of the least of my master's servants. And put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. He's just reminding them of the, uh, the odds. You can't even set 2,000 riders on horses. And you're going to stand up against the great army of the king of Assyria. How will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants? And am I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? Here's another lie. He says, it's the Lord that said unto me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joah unto Rabshakeh, speak, I pray thee, unto thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language. So these three men the representatives of the Jewish people, they say, hey, lower your voice and speak to us in your own language. We can understand you. Don't talk to us in the Hebrew language. Don't talk to us in the language of the Jews. We don't want you to, basically, they didn't want the people to be afraid or be discouraged or be influenced by the lies of these wicked men, of this wicked man, the king that he represented. But Rabshakeh said, Hath my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Hath he not sent me to the men that sit upon the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you? Isn't that vulgar? And that's in the word of God. But that's what these men thought about the Jews, and that's what these men wanted their words to influence the people of God. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and said, Hear ye the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and eat every one of you his vine, and every one of his fig tree, and drink ye every one the waters of his own cistern, until I come and take away, take you away to a land like your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And he goes on. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a spoiler and just tell you how this ends. I hope that it will be encouraging to you. When the people heard this and when it was reported to Hezekiah, they went to God in prayer. I was talking to a brother this morning who was talking about not having any answers. And you know, God brings us, because he loves us, he brings us to places in our life where each one of us, if we're a child of God, comes to a place where we realize, I've got this situation, I've got this problem that I don't have any answers for. I don't see any way of deliverance. I don't see any way out of this situation that we're in. And Hezekiah was in that place. He's the king. He's responsible for the welfare of the people in this city, Jerusalem. The rest of his kingdom has been uh, taken captive already. It's his life. It's his family's life. It's those in the city of Jerusalem that he's responsible for protecting. And he's got these impossible terms. The choice is either certain death or give up their inheritance. It doesn't seem like there's any other possibility. How's this going to turn out? And so they go to the Lord in prayer. It says in Hezekiah with their clothes rent. They told him the words of Rabshakeh. So they came and they told Hezekiah. And when he heard it, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Maybe you're at a place like that in your own life. In your own ministry, in your own family, in your own workplace. You say, I just don't see how there can be a possible good outcome out of this. The options do not seem pleasant. Either option does not seem good. They went to the house of the Lord and they prayed. Well, if you turn over to chapter 37, I want you to see how this ends. God promises this through Isaiah. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. There's going to come a time, I believe, in church history, the future, when it's probably going to be like the church like it was in Jerusalem. The church is going to experience the same thing Jerusalem did here, surrounded by the king of Assyria. And that is, we're outnumbered. We're about to be defeated. There seems like no hope for deliverance. And I believe that's when Jesus Christ is going to come back. When the church is so outnumbered. When you read Revelation, to me, it seems like there's going to be just a handful of people serving God. And it's going to seem like they're about to be squashed out of existence. And I think if you look at church history, you can see the same pattern. 
And then on a grand scale, when Jesus Christ comes back, it may be that way as well. That it seems like the Word of God, the kingdom of God, is going to be totally extinguished. And it's then when God comes in and saves the day. Listen to what happens in chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians. Stop there for a minute before we keep going. You know, God can deliver his people in a number of ways. God could have said to Hezekiah, I want you to blow your trumpet on your mouth. I'm just making up things. You know how God was in uh, Joshua and the city of Jericho. I want you to march around the city once a day for a week. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times and blow your trumpets. And the walls fell down. With Gideon, he's got this great big army and God narrows it down to 300 men who have clay pots with a light inside of it. And they break their clay pots and the light shines out and they shout, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the enemy kill themselves. They're frightened and they fight each other. Well here, Hezekiah doesn't have to do anything. Isaiah doesn't have to do anything. They've prayed. They've taken it to the Lord. God's given them their answer. You know, God's answer is not always what we want. It's not always what we expect, but it's always what's best. And faith has to hold on to that. That God's answer to our prayers is always what's going to be for our good and for His glory. The angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. (laughs) Where's the words of this proud king of Assyria now? You know what happens to him. Actually, he goes back home in defeat. And as he's worshiping in the house of his idol, Nisroch, his two or three sons, they slay their dad. They kill their dad. That's his end. This proud man who stood up against God's people. Why was he defeated? Because of the wisdom of Hezekiah? No. (laughs) Was he defeated because of the might of Hezekiah? Absolutely not. He was defeated because he had set his eyes on destroying the apple of God's eye. The people of God. The kingdom of God. 144,000 slain in one night by the angel of the Lord. That is a remarkable miracle. That's remarkable that this huge army was destroyed in one night by the angel of the Lord. There's the power of God for you. There's the providence of God for you. Now look, if that's the case, if that's the God that we worship today, if that's the God that we serve today, then we have no business even entertaining the concept and the idea that was offered to Hezekiah and offered to the Jews of voluntarily walking away from the inheritance that's ours by the grace of God. A land like your own. Hey, there's corn, there's wine. It's like our land. We can live and we can be at peace and we can, maybe they thought maybe we can serve God in peace in this land. No, 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 no. That's not the inheritance God's given you. Do you value the kingdom of God? Now look, I want to give you some three principles here from this text. First of all, one, God's people are oppressed by powerful men. It was true in Hezekiah's day. It's true in our day. When you read James chapter 2 verse 6, James exhorts the church and he reproves them for this fault. Here was the fault. 
The church in James's day, James, the brother of the Lord, the half brother of Jesus, saw this happening in the church. He saw a poor man. Maybe he is homeless. Maybe he lost his job. Maybe he didn't have nice clothes. Maybe he didn't have a nice car. Come to church, and the people of the church would say, "Oh, we're glad you're here. Take a seat in the back row where people nobody will notice you." And then they'd see a rich man who had nice clothing, he had a nice ring on, he'd come to church, and they'd say, we're even happier to see you, we know the offering's going to be great when you're, when you're here, come take a front row seat, we want you to have a nice position in the church. And James reproves the church, and he says in verse 6, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love them? He says, but ye have despised the poor. And then look, he says, do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. Does that mean God doesn't have children of God that are rich and powerful? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean, by and large, God's people are being oppressed by the powerful. And when you look at those who have great worldly power and influence, whether it's in the culture And we use the phrase Hollywood just to summarize that media culture that has our eyes and has our attentions and has our emotions and has influence. Or whether it's political power or whether it's uh, other kinds of power. uh, False religious power. Those that have great influence and great riches and great power in this world are very often the ones that are oppressing the people of God. God's people are oppressed by powerful men. The king of Assyria was the most powerful man in the earth at that time. And he sought to oppress people of God. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, king of Egypt. At that time, Egypt was the most powerful country. And Egypt has this little group of slaves, the children of Jacob, the children of Israel, that they've oppressed. That they put into slavery and into hard bondage. And when the children of Israel had this simple request, let us go three days into the wilderness so we can worship God and not be defiled by the idols of this land and and offer to God a pure sacrifice and take our children, take our cattle and just go three days and worship God. All we want to do is worship God in spirit and in truth, right? That's what we want to do as New Testament believers. We just want to have the freedom to worship God. To be able to pour out our our praises to Him. To be able to let our souls abound in the prosperity that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. To be able to worship Him in song and in prayer and in adoration. To be able to hear the gospel preached. To be able to lift Him up. What's wrong with that? Why is that against the law? Why has the Chinese outlawed that? To say that's a crime and that you have to go to jail and your soul's oppressed. And you're only allowed, as the king of England would say, to worship in the king's church. And to believe the king's doctrine. And to perform the king's ceremonies. And to do those things that afflict and that oppress the people of God in our soul and in our spirit. Beloved, you're living in a prosperous day, in a blessed day, in which you can choose where you go to church, and you can choose what you believe, and you can hold to that truth, and you can tell others about it without fear of being uh, persecuted or put in prison or put to death. It's not always been that way. You have many ancestors in the faith who died because they wanted to be free in their soul rather than compromise their faith and preserve their life here in this world. What do you value today? What about your inheritance that's been given to you? 
We're talking about an inheritance in which you have direct access to the throne of grace. In which you can come and you can come boldly. And you can bring your supplications and prayers. And you can pray and you can cry out to God. And you can worship Him. And you can exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And you can say there is none other. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is my precious friend and Savior. And I dislike it when you talk badly about Him. And I dislike hearing His name used in vain. And I dislike hearing His kingdom made fun of and mocked and ridiculed. And I dislike His people being persecuted and mistreated. Do you value the kingdom of God? The inheritance that's ours through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. The precious blood of God's Son. That king, that Pharaoh, king of Egypt in Romans 9, this powerful man who was unwilling to give in to their simple godly desire to worship their God, the true and living God. He said, no, you can't do it. God says about Pharaoh, Romans 9, 17, for this same purpose have I raised thee up, God says to Pharaoh, that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Pharaoh, you're a powerful man, but I want you to know your power has been given to you by the God of heaven and earth so that he can show how powerful he is, so that God can show he has more power than you, so that God can glorify his power and his wisdom and his might in casting down and destroying the power of the king of Egypt. And so it is today. I think if I can quote it in in the Proverbs it says I can't quote it, but it talks about how um, the wrath of man shall praise thee, talking about to God, and the remainder thou shalt restrain. God's going to get glory for himself. And one of the ways he's going to do it is by casting down and destroying the enemies of his church. I think it's a beautiful thing, too, that it's God, the Father, that delights to take vengeance on behalf of God, his Son, who was mistreated horribly during his earthly life. And how it's God, the Son, who delights to take vengeance on behalf of his bride, the church. He takes personal the offenses that the world uh, exercises towards The people of God. Jesus Christ takes personally. And Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to take vengeance on those that know not God. God the Father is going to cast them into eternal hell and fire. But Jesus is coming not to vindicate himself so much as to vindicate his church and his bride. And to execute judgment upon those that mistreated the apple of his eye and his prized possession. God's people are oppressed by powerful men. But secondly, I want you to know, God's people are tempted to undervalue the price of our inheritance. And we've referenced this several times now. 1 Peter 1.19, I think I've referenced it twice already, and I'm going to read it to you now. 1 Peter 1.19, this is the price of our inheritance. It says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, all the things that you and I value in this world are corruptible. You haven't been redeemed with corruptible things of silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now, let's take a side note for a minute here. When it says tradition received by your fathers, what's he talking about? I believe he's talking about those 
religious forms and ceremonies and traditions that we receive that are not rooted in the word of God. They're not rooted in the worship of God in spirit and in truth, but are man-made religious activities that we pick up by tradition from our fathers, from those that we look up to, those that have, have been in our life that we love. Those religious forms and traditions that are not rooted in the word of God. He says, you've been redeemed from that. You've been redeemed from this false worship. You've been redeemed from this idolatry to worship the true and living God by the precious, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So the precious blood of Christ... Who's the Lamb of God, John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, who, the Bible says, was without blemish and without spot. You have the virtue of the blood of Jesus Christ by virtue of the fact that He is the Son of God, the God-man, and that He was without sin. This is a remarkable thing that you have a man who never committed any sin in his heart, in his mind, in his speech, in his conduct, in his interactions with one another, in his worship of God the Father. Jesus was without blemish. And that made his sacrifice, that made his atonement of supreme value because it's the, it's the sinless Son of God, the sinless Lamb of God. Precious blood of Christ. That's the price of your redemption. Now, there was a man in the Old Testament named Esau. Many of you have heard of Esau. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Does God hate? Yes, he does. Did God hate Esau because he was worse than Jacob? Well, when I read the account of Jacob and Esau, sometimes I sympathize with Esau more than Jacob. But listen, here's, what, here's the condemnation of Esau. Genesis chapter 25, verse 34 says... Then Jacob gave Esau, Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink. Now, if you don't know the backstory, what happened is Esau was a hunter. He was hungry. He'd been out in the field all day. His brother was a good cook, and Esau says to Jacob, I'm hungry. Give me some soup. Esau, I mean, Jacob, always looking for a business opportunity, says, sure, be happy to. Love to do it. All you have to do is sell me your birthright. <laughs> and Esau, because he was a foolish man, and how... How is it so for each one of us, apart from God's grace, we'll do the same thing. Esau, for a bowl of pottage of lentils, bread and pottage of lentils, it says, he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Mm. He sold his birthright because he was hungry, just for a little bit of food. Now, that's an extreme example. But that's one way that we can undervalue our inheritance. He said, you know what? I would rather have a full stomach than maintain the privileges that are given to me as the firstborn son of my dad. He says, I, I'm hungry. I feel like I'm about to die. So what good is it going to do me if I die? Isn't that the way it is with sin? Isn't that the way it is with our flesh and when we're encountering the temptations of Satan and of the world? If you don't have this you're going to die. I mean, really, it's not logical. It's not because you haven't eaten for 39 days. It's probably only been a day since Esau had a meal or a couple of hours. But sin can be that deceptive that you, sit, you think, if I don't indulge in this, if I don't have this thing, 
If I don't, if I don't get to enjoy this thing, I'm going to die, or I might as well, I'll be as good as dead. Hebrews says this about Esau. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, verse 15, it says, looking diligently, this is talking about in the church, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. That's a sobering statement, but that says that for us as believers, we're to be watching lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. If somebody in this church has bitterness, as a church we're to be on guard against that. Because he says, bitterness can defile many. And then he says, lest there be any fornicator. That's another thing the church is supposed to be on guard against. Is there, are there fornicators? And then he says, or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Esau was a profane man. For one morsel of meat, he sold his birthright. And so the Bible says for us to watch, to look diligently in the kingdom of God even, lest any of these people or situations be discovered. God's people are tempted to undervalue the price of their inheritance, the value of our inheritance, the price that was paid for us to have this inheritance and the value of this inheritance that's been given to us. Now, you say, well, what is this inheritance that you keep talking about? I don't quite understand it. Well, let me tell you, in Ephesians chapter 1, you're experiencing it. If you're a born-again child of God today, you're experiencing a little foretaste of that inheritance. You're experiencing a little uh, down payment or earnest, is what the New Testament calls it, of the fullness of your inheritance. It says in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, In whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. There's your inheritance, and there's the earnest, the down payment, the foretaste of the inheritance that you're going to enjoy in eternity. Until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. I would submit to you that the inheritance is that next thing that he talks about. He says, the redemption of the purchased possession. It's talking about future tense. And you'd say, well, Brother Asa, I thought we were redeemed past tense. Jesus already redeemed us. He paid the price. Yes, he did. And when he's talking about until the redemption of the purchased possession, he's talking about the future state of the glorification of the saints of God. That when Jesus Christ comes back, and this is something that even your loved ones that have departed and gone to heaven have not experienced yet. The departed souls of the saints are enjoying uh, glory in heaven. But there is a future state in which they're looking forward to and anticipating, just like we're looking forward to it and anticipating as well. And that is when Jesus Christ comes back, the dead in Christ will rise up out of the graves. And those that are alive shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And will be gathered up together to be with the Lord forever. It's not going to be just disembodied souls. If you ever think about it, I kind of think of like a cartoon heart with little stick figure arms and legs walking around in heaven. It's not going to be just souls in the presence of God. We're going to have glorified bodies. You and I are going to have physical bodies. Bodies that are similar to Jesus' body. Remember Jesus, he ate uh, fish and bread there when he met his disciples on the coast when they were fishing that morning. Jesus had a physical body that you could touch. He said to Thomas, stick your hands in the prints in my, whole, in my hands and in my side. Thrust your fist into my side. 
Physical bodies. Remember uh, when uh, Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And they saw Moses and Elijah there. Well, Moses and Elijah lived hundreds and thousands of years before Peter, James, and John. And yet they knew who these men were. We're going to have physical bodies that are distinguishable and recognizable. And I think all of us are going to be a lot happier with how we look. We're not going to have the wrinkles and the age and the infirmities of these bodies. But we're going to have glorious bodies that are even, I would submit to you, even better than the body of Adam and Eve. We're going to have glorified bodies that are without sin. That can bear to see the glory of God. And delight in the glory of God. And worship God. Don't you enjoy singing? We enjoyed the songs this morning. Well, there's going to be some singing going on. That's out of this world, literally. We're going to be able to hit some high notes that we never knew existed. We're going to be able to sing melodiously. And and there's going to be unity. And there's going to be diversity. And there's going to be beauty. In the, the multitude, the Bible says that no man can number. Gathered around the throne of God, worshiping Him. That's a little bit of the inheritance that's given to you as the people of God. A sinless state of existence. A glorious, a glorified. The Bible says that you're glorified in the mind and purpose of God. You've already been glorified. Jesus said when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I believe he's talking about those glorified bodies that our souls are going to inhabit. There's not going to be any restriction. There's not going to be any uh, infirmity. There's not going to be any... uh, Fighting with sin, the warfare is going to be over. And he says that the earnest of that is this Spirit of God that dwells inside of me, the Holy Spirit of God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. The Spirit of God living inside of us is a foretaste of that inheritance that we have being glorified with Jesus Christ. And when the Bible says you're glorified, you're going to be glorified. You are glorified. And it says that in the past tense. I can't understand that or explain it to you. But in Romans 8, 29, it says, Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, he also did... Uh, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. So he's talking about if you've been predestinated by God, you've already been glorified in some sense. I think it just has to mean in the mind and purpose of God. But when he says you're going to be glorified, he's not saying that you're going to be lifted up on a throne and worshipped like Jesus Christ is. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that you are going to be heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus, who deserves worship and praise. Jesus, who accomplished our salvation on the cross. Jesus, who fulfilled the will of God perfectly to the jot and to the tittle. Who satisfied the law's demands. Who offered a perfect sacrifice. Who was raised up victorious the third day. Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus, to whom we owe our allegiance and our worship and our devotion. The Bible says you've been made joint heirs with Him. The glory that he has inherited by virtue of his person and of his work, he freely shares with you as his beloved, as his church, as his bride. And the the Bible says that when a man and a woman are married, they're joined and they become one flesh and they twain become one. And the Bible says, this is a mystery, Paul says, and I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ and the church. 
that Jesus has said, I'm going to join myself to you, and they twain shall be one flesh. That's a mystery. The Bible says we're glorified with Jesus Christ, and maybe that's what it's talking about. Jesus is already glorified. You're one with him through the, uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to be with him with those glorified bodies. That spotless bride prepared for her husband. Beloved, the wedding day is coming. I remember when Brother Jamie and Sister Catherine got married. Elder Sonny Piles preaching that morning about going to a wedding. And we were literally going to a wedding that afternoon. And he was talking about this day of glory that we're talking about. When Jesus Christ comes back. And beloved, we're going to a wedding. If you're a child of God, you've got an invitation and your place is guaranteed and it's reserved and you're going to be there and you're going to see him high and lifted up and your soul is going to be satisfied when you see the glory of the Lord. Well, thirdly, God's people are tempted to replace Christ, who really is the sum and substance of our inheritance, with idols. That's the third point and that's what I'm driving at when it talks about a land like your own. Satan's got lots of counterfeits. The world's got lots of counterfeits. There's a lot of organizations. There's a lot of institutions. There's a lot of messages out there that are counterfeits to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's kingdom. And you and I are not exempt from being tempted to replace Jesus Christ, our Savior, with the idols of this world. I want to take take you to some verses and we'll close. Jeremiah chapter 2. This is a powerful verse for our day Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 and it's really just a description of idolatry he says be astonished O ye heavens at this and be horribly afraid be ye very desolate saith the Lord for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns Broken cisterns that can hold no water. I'm sorry, I just realized that our time is gone. Let me be brief. Bear with me. Two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. There's idolatry. We're not worshiping the true and living God. And we've hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We've substituted the worship of God with some other broken jar that can't hold any water. That's our human condition by nature. We're trying to fill our souls and it's like a broken cistern and you're trying to put water in it and it won't hold any water. This is the two evils that God's people have committed. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the time's gone. Colossians 2.8 will be the last verse. <clears throat> the church is warned. The Colossian church was warned and warning still applies to us today. He says, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Beware lest any man spoil you. You could paraphrase this to say, beware lest any man trick you, spoil you, tempt you to replace Christ with anything else. Any other ceremony, any other ritual, any other religious activity other than worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There are many scriptures we could go to in the New Testament 
to illustrate when New Testament early Christians were tempted to think that they had to you know, have special respect to certain holy days or get circumcised or do other activities to add to the worship of God. And it just wasn't so. It wasn't true. And Paul fought tooth and nail against that because he wanted God's people to continue in the liberty that's given to us as his people. The inheritance that's given to us as God's people. And here's my last point. When we read in Isaiah 36 about going into this land that was like your land, like your promised land, like your inheritance, the point that I want you to see, and it's true for all of us today, is nobody could take that from them other than the Lord. That was their gift. God had given it to them. And it, did, it was according to God's will later on for Nebuchadnezzar to come and for them to go into captivity for 70 years. But it was God's will. He told them it was going to happen. He told them how long it would last. And he brought them back into it. If God's given it to you, nobody can take it from you. But what you can do is give it up freely. You can surrender. You can turn over the goods. You can think you don't have any options. And you can say, you know what? We just don't have any options. My family doesn't have any options. The church doesn't have any options. The people I'm responsible for. Hezekiah could have said that. The people I'm responsible for, it would be better for them to be alive in a different country than for us to all be dead in our promised land. The devil can't take it from you. But if you believe his lie, the children of Israel have believed the lie of these wicked men. They could have walked away from it. They could have given it up. They could have surrendered it to the enemy. Just because it's like your land doesn't mean it's as good. Don't undervalue, don't undermine, don't underappreciate the value of your inheritance. God bless you. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.